0: Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha,
1: and I'm Glenn McDorman. This is it. This is our final episode of Chapter Three, and so we will have done. You know, by the end of this episode, anyway, we will have done seven episodes in total. Uh, not quite as many as Chapter Two, probably also not as many as we'll do for Chapter Four. But still, we have been with this chapter for a long time. And this episode is also kind of a big deal for us from the, the show perspective, because uh, behind the scenes, uh, this is going to be the last one that we record for a long time. Uh, I mean, that's that's planned. It doesn't do anything to the release schedule, but behind the scenes, we are not going to record episodes for this show again for six months. It's kind of a big deal.
0: Yeah, we're taking a, a, little, a little pause. Uh, I'll be on, I think, paternity leave from the network, though. Not really. That just means i have more time to plan other things to do but yeah so that's that's the plan it is a big deal we're going to take a pause and that means when we come back to peace uh, we're going to we're going to be rereading a bunch of the novel before we read <laughs> chapter 4 i think and that actually only serves to benefit us and, and taking the breaks actually behind the scenes uh, also really benefits our i think our reading of the of the novel and things like that some time to think and breathe and reflect but it'll be sad not to not to be deep in a wolf novel for a little while.
1: Yeah, it's going to be a little weird and and of course behind the scenes as well our our initial plan for how we were going to approach this book changed when I was becoming a father as well. So this book is just kind of uh, kind of wrapped up in our, our personal biographies. And uh, I don't know if that's something we'll talk about perhaps in more detail on the air someday. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm almost a little loath to just get into the episode, Brandon, just because it is going to be our last one. But I think that Probably listeners would like us to start talking about the book. So (laughs) let's do that. So yeah, this is our second discussion episode. It's our our final discussion episode for this chapter. And in this one, we're going to talk about writing craft. We'll do that at the end. Uh, We'll also actually have quite a bit in that segment. There's a lot of writing craft stuff we want to do, but we're going to start by thinking about the characters. Yeah, we get a lot
0: about different characters in the story. I mean, we get one major character introduced to us and then little snippets about other background characters. And I think most importantly, we'll want to, I don't know, I don't think it'll take more than 10 or 15 minutes, but talking about Weir's father, because this is the most we've seen of him in the novel. So, you know, to begin in terms of talking about these characters, I can't think of a better place to start than with the eponymous character of this chapter. And I'm saying that vaguely because, uh, I guess, There has to be one alchemist that this (laughs) chapter is about. But I think we found three in this story. There's Tilly, Julius Smart, and Alden Dennis Weir, who we learn is probably a chemist at Smart's company, at least in the early part of his career. But I will say that because the second chapter was named Olivia, the first chapter was named Alden Dennis Weir, those are really the central figures of those chapters. Well, The Alchemist just feels to me like it's introducing us to someone new who plays an important or symbolic role in Weir's life. You know, The Alchemist is more of a, an emblematic name, perhaps, than just to name this chapter like Julia Smart or Mr. Tilly, just the plain name. And, well, it is the case that Weir, at the time of meeting Smart, says that uh, Smart did not strike Weir as a powerful, much less symbolic figure. There's these, descriptions of negation around smart that are important. But to me, this means that later, we are realized that smart was indeed powerful, that he does take on some sort of symbolic meaning. So for me, I think smart is the alchemist. uh, And we've seen some of the ways, maybe the symbols about smart show up in the novel. And and we'll talk about those things as we as we go along in this episode.
1: But I guess the first question here is Glenn: Is uh, am I right? Yeah, <laughs> <Do> you disagree <laughs> with me, right? This is an interesting question. I mean, there is certainly this this. Approach to answering the question that you've taken, which is to examine the the chapter titles. But of course, we are limiting ourselves to what we have read so far. Even though it would be absolutely nothing for us right now to flip through and see what's the title of chapter four, what's the title of chapter five? Are they the names of characters who are actually in the book? But so far, right, that is the case for chapter one and chapter two. And so, I, I see a reasoning there that this would not be referring to uh, a character. Character in a story within the story, but would be referring to someone who, you know, we know from Weir is like a real person who actually matters. Whereas Mr. Tilly, as far as we know, never actually has existed and is only a character in Julius Smart's story, though I think we actually both think that he or at least someone like him did exist. So yeah, that's uh, that's one approach, and I think it's a valid approach. But uh, I think it's wrong. Uh, I don't think that Julia Smart <laughs> is the alchemist. And my approach to this is, uh, well, one is just because it's fun to disagree with each other; it's better radio than if we agree. But the other real thing here is that you know, just to think about like what is actually an alchemist, right? What do we mean by? Alchemist, and it might be wolf or you know we're I suppose playing around with the relationship between the word alchemist and the word chemist, but I think that if we're thinking about actual alchemy as a kind of pseudoscience, as uh, maybe a sort of fringe type of science of people with some real scientific knowledge, scientific inclinations or experimental inclinations anyway, using their powers to quest after something that seems far-fetched and that also might not be a good thing to be Questing after, uh, like say, eternal life or uh, transforming base metals into precious metals, for example, right? Those are the things that are kind of the hallmarks of alchemy. That the person we see doing that in this chapter is not Weir, it's not Julius Smart, but it is actually Tilly, right? We see Tilly being a mad scientist here, doing stuff with science that one ought not to do, perhaps doing it in search of riches. He is also explicitly concerned about prolonging his life. <laughs> you know, there's an actual threat to his life, of course, but he is trying to prolong his life, which is something alchemists do. So to my mind, Tilly's the alchemist.
0: Yeah, that that's that's fair. And that's my initial thought as well. But, uh, you know, using the reasoning I laid out before, I'm going to stick with smart. <laughs> that's my answer uh that but yeah that was my initial inclination it, that that desire to live forever that we t- we have been talking about the pursuit of the philosopher's stone in service to the great work um hey you know ghosts are people who kind of live forever and there's a lot of ghosts in this story there's the ghost in smart story and then there's the ghost that kind of Brings us to the closing of chapter three as well in Weir's house, or what appears to be a type of ghost. The fear of encountering a ghost. Maybe in the way that Weir fears encountering his secretary if he pushes the button and if it's his fake office, that things are just slightly unreal. And that, you know, maybe Weir then is the alchemist who has found the secret to living forever. But it's not quite what he expected. He can cast his mind back. Reality isn't what it appears to be. He's maybe brought someone else back to life uh, in his pursuit of this as well. So it's a confusing chapter title. I think it's meant to be symbolic, and I think it's meant to represent the uh, thematic motifs of the main characters that we sort of encounter in this chapter, who are Smart, Tilly, and Weir. So this is a maybe
1: more dense or complex chapter heading than than what we've gotten before. That's a great observation that we're also is doing something sort of mad science-y right in this book. I mean, he makes this speech uh, in his four-year-old body to Dr. Black that eh, sounds pretty mad scientisty, right? So yeah, maybe Tilly's not the only mad scientist in this story. And hey, we still don't know what's in these jars, right? So yeah, you might be onto something there. Maybe they're all alchemists. Maybe they're all mad scientists in some way.
0: Yeah. I don't know if we're going to talk too much about the the metaphysical conversation that that Weir and Dr. Black have, uh, though that's something I think we'd usually spend an episode <laughs> doing just because it's not the focus of this chapter. But maybe here, since uh, since we kind of brought it up, we can just take a second to say that, yeah, Weir's talking about energy not being created or destroyed, and the idea of, of metaphysics and what existence really is. And all of this feels very alchemical to me in terms of
1: uh, a philosophical approach to being. Yeah. And certainly we will dedicate a lot of uh, discussion uh, moments, minutes, perhaps hours to that speech. Just, I think that's going to be in the final, you know, wrap up episodes uh, for this book, because this really is is part of the, hey, what's actually going on in this book, (laughs) part of the discussion that we're just not ready to have yet.
0: Yeah. Well, even though we disagree with one another, and I think I've uh, shown our audience that I disagree with myself about who the (laughs) alchemist is, let's talk about Julia Smart, who is the first major new character introduced in this chapter. Uh, We're going to do some stuff that we haven't done in a really long time, like talk about what names mean initially, whether that plays into uh, Wolf's sense of meaning as the writer of this story and uh, some of the symbolic issues surrounding Julia Smart. So let's start with Julius Smart's name. Julius is a name that means like downy or hairy, like the woolly part of plants or the the sort of downy type of facial hair that young men grow initially. Maybe there's some connection between this name and and the biblical figure Esau, who sold his birthright to his brother for a bowl of soup. Uh, I'm not going to go into that here because Believe me, I went down that rabbit hole and that was 30 <laughs> minutes of time. I wish I could have gotten back. I just couldn't draw any connections. But I'll throw it out there. Maybe our audience can think of something I've missed. Uh, smart is a name that can mean intelligent or cunning or like tidy or neat or painful. It's a word that means a lot. Uh, I don't know how we put these together to get a real sense of what this character's name is means. But Glenn, I wonder if you're putting any weight on that sort of way of interpreting Smart's name
1: in this story. It is always fun, I think, to try to decode <laughs> the wolves' characters' names, because I I think they always mean something. I mean, there might be some examples in which they don't, but usually they they seem to. I will go on a tangent here just to say that the etymology for Julius that you've given is is one of several potential etymologies. We don't actually know the etymological origin of this Latin name, Julius, here. The etymology that you've given means that it derives from Greek. I don't think that that is really the etymology. I think it's more likely that it derives from Etruscan and has something to do with uh, the worship of of, of Jupiter or, or, or Jove, but that is a, a small point that doesn't really mean a whole lot because I definitely believe that if uh, Gene Wolfe looked up this name in like a baby name book— that's the that's the meaning he's going to get. That's good. that's going to be the entry there for what does the name Julius mean? So I think we can take it as given that this name, from Wolf's perspective anyway, is going to mean young, and I think we can just take smart to mean what. It means for us when we use it now, which is almost always to mean intelligent. Although that's actually a newer meaning. the The original meaning uh, really actually does derive from uh, the, the pain. Like uh, that smarted, uh, that smarts when you you do that to me. That's the original meaning of that. We actually get to that meaning intelligent through the descriptor of the type of pain uh, that that. We're feeling when we say something smart as being like a sharp pain, and that that's like a, 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 an adjective that we also could append to someone's intellect. But yeah, so all of that, a roundabout way, just to say, yeah, I think this name just means young man who's smart, right? Yeah. I
0: think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the the Jove bit. That's another half hour. Right. I wish I could have gotten back as well. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, man, I, I went so deep into these names and was like, there's a few I don't want to do. Like Tilly could be Germanic or the medieval English, like from the Norman conquest. Like, man, it's a lot of work. And and, and God bless you if you want to bring us out, uh, that up to us on the <laughs> forum and, and get meanings out of it. I'm sticking to ones that I think um, we can really maybe draw some meaning out of or, or think about in, in new ways by doing this type of analysis with the names. But yeah, Julius Smart could just mean young man who's smart. And I, I don't know. I wonder if the, in this post-industrial, like pre-technological age, uh, as we live in this technological age now, if if Wolf wasn't thinking that... Uh, being smart is more painful than than not. There's much more demanded of you in a society that um, in order to really get ahead, to get out of the working class, uh, there's a a sort of demand for raw intelligence in a way that I think is is very different from other other past societies. And uh, maybe it doesn't cause us then to live the best lives, the most lives of flourishing, uh, that, that I think is a style of living that Wolf really values. And that's brought up in this text as
1: well. Well, that is, that is something we can largely table for now and bring up later, but <laughs> I, I, I will just comment on that briefly just to say that, well, well, yeah, you know, going back to talking about the American dream and Janet's sort of monologue uh, against industrial capitalism, uh, Seeing jobs as a type of of slavery, or at least a type of you know dependency or servitude, that this book, right, Wolf is writing this book uh, at a mo- at a moment when he is, as far as we can tell, I guess, fairly unhappy at his food engineering job at Procter and Gamble in Houston, actively looking for a new job that is uh, he is going to take eventually that's going to lead him to Chicago, uh, working for the trade publication Plant Engineering, but then ultimately, as soon as he's got the success of Book of the New Sun, to take that and actually live the American dream and become himself the small business of professional writer and that that's how he's going to support himself and support his family. and so uh, I think all, all I think all of those feelings and uh, you know aspirations, also the stress and anxiety that Wolf is feeling as an engineer, a working engineer for Procter and Gamble at this moment uh, is, is bleeding through not just here in peace, right but in for lesson and in so many other places, uh, stories that we've already covered.
0: Yeah, I think if we were to do a, a periodization of Wolf's work, we might call this kind of, uh, I don't know, mid seventies period, like a, a period of cynicism. And this book is as, as brutally cynical, I think, as Hour of Trust and, and for lesson work. Well, we're still talking about Julius Smart, at least nominally, I guess. (laughs) I don't know. No pun intended. uh, There's another bit about Julius Smart here that uh, we should talk about. And that is the way that, as I pointed out, Weir thinks of Julius as a symbolic figure. And there are two of these Symbolic figures we've seen so far, or at least uh, m- analogical or metaphoric uses, uh, references to smart uh, that we've gotten in the text. The first, we're I think we're still pretty firm that the story about Naranj the Marid and Benyaya is meant to represent. Now we can see it represents smart. Uh, Naranj, as we said, means orange in in Arabic, and you know Marids are kind of demonic type figures. They at least have a less than stellar reputation in Arabic literature. And then in the fairy tale about Olivia, Smart, the fourth suitor, is the one who gins gold from the earth, the fire suitor who wins Olivia. So Glenn, what do you make of these symbolic references to Smart in the story? And do you think they match with the man as presented to us that we've met in this chapter of the story?
1: So I want to start by... Zooming in on the the story of Naranj and the, the merit, because I, I'm not sure that I agree that Julia Smart is anywhere in that. So make that case for me.
0: Julia Smart is a person who is pretty obsessed with oranges so far. He talks a lot about oranges. The orange tree and lemon tree are one of the first things he notices in front of Tilly's house. He buys oranges at the store, takes them off the tree, and there's a whole scene with an orange and food tampering. And after that moment, Smart says that he's got some ideas about oranges that will make people really stand up. And so I think we're seeing an explicit connection between Smart and oranges in, in the text.
1: I see. Okay. So yeah, it's this linguistic connection. And yeah, I I agree. There there, there probably is something going on there. But I think in terms of what is the story about, right, which is about someone who works himself to physical exhaustion, And, and not just exhaustion, but poor health, right? Hoping that he'll get a, a chance to be with a, a woman. I, to, to me, I think that really is Weir's story, right? And we get that reinforced in this chapter as well by Dr. Van Ness, who is, is you know, accusing Weir of uh, ruining his health by being addicted to his work. So, uh, it, you know, of course, this is the way stories work is that they don't have to have only one meaning. They don't have to have only one symbolic meaning. So yeah, perhaps it's applying both to to Julius Smart and to Weir.
0: Yeah, I I also think. Then in in that case, I I also agree with you that is a story about Weir. It's a story about how Weir is framing his uh, life and work. What I see in the text is that Weir is a person who does not want to take responsibility for his own choices, and so I mean that that kind of was the the second question I was asking about whether Weir is just blaming Smart for his being a workaholic, or whether the Smart that we see. Has any f- actual features in common with Naranj the Marid? If we can just assume that my interpretation is correct for the for the sake of argument or the sake of I don't know discussion, which I guess is what we're <laughs> here for. So, yeah, I, 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 yeah, that's that's the question I have. Is is for me? It's we're offloading the responsibility of his choices or actions, which we see even in, in the way he talks about Bobby Black. So I do think we're views smart as this Naranj type figure. I don't see how, in the real world, they're connected in the way they're presented to us. I mean, we know that Smart is kind of maybe a person who runs the company from the spreadsheet and wants to see it match when he does these factory tours. That's just irritating, um, but that doesn't mean he's a he's a slave driver, literally, like the way that Naranj is presented in the story. So I think there's a a way in which we're symbolically thinks of Smart. That in reality does not really match who smart is.
1: Yeah, I, you know, I think I'm going to go back and say, actually, that I I don't think that that the neurons here is actually referring to Julius smart and I'll I'll make a case for that. But one of the components of that case is that we know actually that that we're is running this company for a long time, right? This he's going back to talk to Dr. Van Ness when his his body is significantly younger than it is now that he's had this stroke with 20 years previously. And in those moments, Dr. Van Ness is talking to Weir as if he is someone who owns and operates a big, important company in Cashinsville right so it does not seem like it's a situation in which we're worked for julia smart as an employee in this type of relationship for a long long time for like his whole life but that he's still young relatively young when he actually takes over the ownership and and management of the company but i do think that we might actually think about what is it that's in the jars what is the company making does it have something to do with oranges, <laughs> you know, or at least something to do with Tilly, Tilly's ideas about stuff, right? And so that this is a symbolic way of we're saying that I was enslaved to the company, right? Not necessarily to a person, right? But to this company, to this orange stuff that we had, we sold in the jars. I gave my life to that. And in doing so lost my chance with Margaret Lorne uh, and 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 maybe lost my chance with anyone. And hey, I'm not actually happy. That's a fair reading. I'll accept it for the, <laughs> for the sake, both of
0: moving on, but also because it's well stated. <laughs> There's obviously more to talk about uh, Julia Smart here. And one of the things I think we really need to bring up is the way that Weir refers to Smart As maybe the central figure of this book. Now, in in our recap episode where this text came up, I pointed out that Smart literally is the central figure of this book by way of page count. But you know, I I don't know if that's a satisfying answer to anyone but me, uh, thinking as Wolf the prankster. Uh, So. Perhaps we should examine this claim a little more closely uh, to determine in what ways for Weir Smart is the central character of this book, which is to say Smart being the central character of Weir's sense of himself as he's reflecting back on this, these times in his life. One thing I am going to say here to bolster my claim about this being a joke Is that the text also states, which is to say that Weir says that smart will not show up much more in the narrative which means, I think, that Weir is writing and editing and thinking about the outline of the rest of this book as he's writing it. Anytime you explain a joke, it becomes less funny. So <laughs> my apologies to our <laughs> listeners. Uh, but anyway, Glenn, all of that set aside, why do you think this, is, this claim is in the text?
1: Yeah, because right now, it doesn't seem to be true, right? Right now, this is just not true. The central character in the story of Weir, as we have it right now, is Bobby Black. Right. Everything that's happening in his life is the result of the death of Bobby Black, Uh, who we're turns out to be the relationship that he has with Olivia, his abandonment, at least temporarily, but but like a long temporary period uh, by his parents. Right. That is so formative for him. And that is because of the death of of Bobby Black. So this is a, you know, the case where you're thinking about who's the most important person to have been in my life, you know, is to say, well, how would my life be different if, you know, this person and that person and that other person, you know, individually by turns, you know, just hadn't existed. You kind of reverse, uh, it's a wonderful life way of doing things, I guess, right? <laughs> and so far that's Bobby Black. But I think from Weir's perspective, and we're going to see this, I think, as we get into chapters four and and then chapter five, his life has really been dominated by and perhaps determined by his relationship with this company. And so Julia Smart, as the founder of the company, the person who bequeaths it to him, is therefore the central person in Weir's life, because the company is the central thing in his life. That's that's my sense of it. But I, I don't know, maybe you've got a different reading than that.
0: I, I don't have too much of a different sense of it. I will say that we're then is pretty bad at, at, at chains of causality <laughs> because <laughs> you're really right to point out that Bobby Black should be the central figure, like that this moment in his childhood set the course for the rest of his life, which is clearly true. Because of this, Weir goes to live with Olivia, who is also a central figure in this book. Like she's all over the place. Even if we look at uh, Weir's uh, lament, his eulogy for for Olivia, where he says, "I didn't recognize how great she was when we were close." You know, before she died, it's also his relationship with Olivia that leads him to Julia Smart, but. Weir is willing to overlook all of that, to say that the most important thing in my life, the most important things that happened to me in my life were job-related and economic. And I think that that tells us a lot about Weir's uh, outlook, his worldview. Uh, about what he thinks is important at this point in his life.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, y- y- you know, I mean, I think anytime we're looking back at these sort of chains of causality, I mean, is me thinking as a historian now, or you know, someone at least who's been trained as a historian is, you know, at some point you're just gonna say, I'm gonna keep going back, going back, going back. And so, you know, these these older things, right? The the more previous things are gonna be seen as more important because of the, the, the linking of the, the chains. And so that's, of course, how we're going to get to Bobby Black, to Olivia, then to Julia Smart. But I think if we actually were to take a look back, as you're suggesting, at least, you know, like, uh, you know, the three chapters we've done so far and say, who has been actually the character that Weir has say written the most about, thought of the most about, that's going to be Olivia. And I have not done this, though, as you said at the top, Brandon, we're going to have an opportunity to go back and do a complete reread before we take up chapter four in a few months. Uh, so I will do this. I think That Olivia is probably the only character, other than Weir, who has direct speech in each chapter so far.
0: I I think you're absolutely right, and it will be worth investigating. I mean, just off the top of my head, there are these brief snippets of... Dialogue uh, where Olivia is like you know talking to people and stuff, and that that's important. But they're all secondary characters who kind of disappear or appear for an important moment, so that Olivia has someone to talk to. So that'll be worth kind of uh, untangling and looking at when we when we do our reread prior to covering chapter four. The last thing I want to do with Julia Smart here is. I mean, we've talked a lot about him as a business owner. We've talked a lot about him in the last chapter, his oratorical skills as a narrator uh, or an orator to an audience, a storyteller. But this story's really caught up with a lot of stuff about Julius Smart. And there's a lot that really stood out to me that I want to address, at least on my side. And I'm sure there are things that stood out to you. Two things really jumped out to me about Julius Smart in reading this chapter. The first is that he makes it clear to his audience and also to Tilly that he is at least nominally a Christian, by which I mean following the cultural norms of of Christianity in the area where he is. So in the South, teetotaling would be really important as a way of signifying integrity or living the right way uh, and smart as a teetotaler. Uh, But he also is the one who just explicitly says also, in his language, the way he uses language, like my parents moved on to their reward, nominally Christian. He's adapted the cultural use of Christianity, maybe for his benefit, though he also might be a devout Christian, uh, pious in a sense. Uh, and the other thing is that Weir points out that you know, and this is another description by negation that Smart is not quote officially crippled, which means like there's some sort of... Either we get a sense of deformation that might cause some difficulty in moving through the world in the way uh, people without disabilities are able to. So those two things really jumped out to me, seem to be important character moments for SMART. We can talk about these in a minute. But Glenn, I want to know if anything else jumped out to you about SMART while reading this narrative.
1: I think for me, these two observations that you've made are really the big characteristics of Julius Smart that we need to take stock of. And we have talked a little bit about them in the, the recap episodes, but the thing that really jumps out to me about Julius Smart's sort of overt Christianity or his adherence to the cultural norms of a, a type of Protestant Christianity as you know practiced in, in, in Kansas, I, I, I guess, right? The sort of Midwestern Protestant Christianity. This jumps out to me because we don't see anyone else doing that, even though it's all the same geographic area, right? We don't see anyone else in Weir's family's orbit really doing this. And in fact, quite the opposite, right? We see that nobody's really adhering to any of these norms. And so he stands out for that just as much as he stands out, I think, for uh, you know this, this stooped or, or, or enlarged uh, shoulder that he has.
0: I guess that brings up one kind of other metatextual question for me in hearing us talk about this. And we're talking about teetotaling. This is during the era of prohibition, right? This is taking place one month after the affair with the Chinese egg. Weir makes a point of saying smart is the only one drinking tea at this birthday party, which means there's booze. I don't know if there's anything to really, like, make hay with out of that. But that just really struck me as, as we were talking about this. I wonder if you have any thoughts about that,
1: Glenn. Yeah, I wondered about this as well. Uh, really, the question is, you know, we're still kind of not entirely certain exactly what year this story is taking place. And though I think that no matter what, Weir's life here, right, the, the present of the The birthday party is definitely solidly in prohibition, but we do then have to wonder when the the story about working for Tilly or or you know at Tilly's shop anyway when that was taking place. I suspect that might actually have been prior to prohibition or at least part of it. So that when he's telling Tilly, "I don't drink," it, 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 that wasn't him saying, "I you know I adhere to the law by by not uh, by not drinking," uh, but that it is actually just a, a matter of, of of personal choice. It's a matter of teetotal. There, but but no, this is during the era of prohibition, and we have seen a lot of alcohol in this story. In fact, right, it's actually right there in chapter one at the birthday party. The adults are uh, are drinking. Probably that also is during prohibition. Uh, that that fifth birthday party.
0: That's just an interesting contextual note, and and I agree with you that smart, uh, though he's young, we know he's f- maybe five years younger than Olivia. Might have gotten his first job prior to prohibition, but uh, you know, all of this is taking place. During Prohibition, and nobody really seems to care all that much. I mean, all, the whole Chamber of Commerce is at this birthday party, and uh, they're all they're all boozing it up, except for Smart, who's not judging anybody, but is pointedly drinking drinking tea. And that's something that I think really stands out to Weir in this moment as well. We're it to teetotaling, not to the larger cultural context of Prohibition, because maybe nobody in his family ever try to follow the law there. So that really leaves us with this question about Smart being described as not officially crippled. He's a small man. He's young and very successful. I don't I don't know what these are really doing as, as character points. I don't think they're symbolic character points. I think they're just how Wolf has envisioned this character. Yet still, it seems pretty important. I can't really make sense of it, though. Is there anything that You think is important about uh, this deformity of smarts? You know, I've tried to think about the relationship of like ugliness as moral deformity in art history. Hunchbacks are kind of a classic example of this, but then we have the Hunchback of Notre Dame, which also deals with alchemy. But that's the enemy character, uh, the antagonist, who's sort of into alchemy. Quasimodo is sort of the tragic hero of the tale. You. Have said in our past episodes that, you know, it's not clear that Smart is like really hunchbacked. He just might have a a little shoulder deformity. What's going on with this in your mind?
1: Well, I've been saving this up, but um, I'll, I'll say it now, but I won't make my case until the final wrap-up episodes. But I don't know. This just seems like it's begging for someone to make a case that Julius Smart is Jesus. Uh, you know, So I don't know. I'll do that at some point. But I think that probably the better answer to your question is that we are making Julius Smart not physically attractive. And that's in contrast to Professor Peacock, who we're told is just like amazingly attractive. Uh, And then of course, Olivia, we are told repeatedly is the most beautiful woman who has ever existed, right? That anyone's ever seen. And Olivia is just awesome, right? She's just super beautiful. Uh, This is then true of Professor Peacock as well. And then of course, Jimmy McAfee and Stuart Blaine have other things going on for them as as well, right? They have this, this wealth. But then we get Julia Smart, who's a guy who has just enough money to have collateral to borrow money from the bank possibly Stuart Blaine's bank, in fact, uh, to to buy Bledsoe's pharmacy here in Cashinsville and then have to work for a living in order to pay that loan back at the very least, right? And then also is less physically attractive than Professor Peacock is, and, and perhaps might actually be just not in the same league of attractiveness as Olivia herself. Yet of all the suitors in this room, he's the one she marries, but then, also, she's the one he cheats on, right? I mean, I think we know that she would have cheated on anybody right. she <laughs> married.
0: Which, yeah, you know, we'll talk about what we learned about some of these characters in a little bit. I'm really glad you reminded me about the the purchasing of Bledsoe's because it, it called to mind uh, some of the what I was tracking in this chapter, which is this sort of sense of the grotesquery surrounding the abnormal, or at least how Weir gloms onto that in his retelling of Smart's story, associating the abnormalities of the woman with the hands in her shoulders, with the ghost, the same kind of fear that surrounds that, uh, the way Smart redresses Bledsoe's, so that there's less of the me- medical devices out in public. This kind of fear of the other, particularly the um, physically deformed other, and and the striving to the norm, and yet all the stuff that's presented as the norm in this book so far is is actually underpinned with more tragedy and ugliness than these characters are. And maybe uh, what I want to ask you then, Glenn, here is, is, since it's on my mind, is, do you think that was kind of a theme of this chapter? Or am I doing some overreading there?
1: No, it definitely jumps out. And I, I wonder if there is actually a connection between Smart and the people at the carnival, and maybe in particular, Janet, right? And 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 to go back to Janet's American Dream speech, right? Her her, uh, speech about how the thing that she wants to give her child, even if it means giving him some kind of physical deformity, is for him to have an ability to be his own boss, to run his own business, to not have to be someone else's employee. Because that is what we see Julia Smart do, right? That Julia Smart starts out as someone who is looking for a job. And then saves up enough money to take the risk to run his own shop. And then even later, although we don't know how this transition works, becomes a manufacturer of some kind of chemical or or food product that is being marketed for, for children. And this becomes a highly successful business in which he becomes richer even than Stuart Blaine who, you know, up to this point is really the richest person that we have seen in the story. And so, you know, we can see Julia Smart have this same kind of drive that Janet herself has. And this perhaps is contrasted with all of these very attractive men who have inherited money which describes all three of the other suitors. All three of the other suitors are attractive men who have inherited their wealth and inherited their positions whereas both Julia Smart and Janet are people who are having to forge right their their independence, having to really wrestle that out of society, having to carve out a position for themselves that is independent, that that does not have them being dependent on other people. So I, I don't know. There might be something there symbolically, I suppose. Right the, the sort of physical relationship that they share as well.
0: Yeah, I wonder if Wolf is engaging a little bit here with that trope of the the magical outsider that you you know you can read about this in in you know critical theory if you want, uh, where there's the the sort of othering of people who are not represented to be the norm in society, but because they're just outside. Of the norm and still able, at least in terms of the American dream, to participate in the norm, they're sort of kind of better suited for it. You know, there's stuff like, I don't know, like the legend of Bagger Vance, maybe, or like the mis- mysterious janitor who makes you young, or like, uh, I don't know, just, just, just. You know, it could be a class, a race thing, a a sexual orientation thing where that kind of magical outsider is more suited to achieve, though they're held back from it in some way. And Wolf is kind of giving that uh, its proper due. The real dignity of these characters is in their Uh, striving and almost needing to strive to have their otherness overlooked in society and also commenting on the fact that making money is one way that we overlook otherness.
1: I mean, a huge theme or at least a huge motif of this book so far is exactly the the things that money can do for you, right? I mean, that's, that's a huge part of this book so far.
0: Yeah, and uh, I'm not recommending The Legend of Bagger Vance for the record. So if you do come across movies about magical janitors, uh, send them my way. Uh, that's totally my jam.
1: Yeah, that's it. That's your <laughs> career
0: aspiration. <laughs> it is my career aspiration. I want to be a magical janitor. Uh, well, there is one other character that I want to examine, sort of in a similar way we did Smart with that kind of lens of, of analysis. And that's Margaret Lorne she's shown up in every chapter of this book. She's clearly very important, kind of object of desire, at least. Uh, We've talked at different times about how she might symbolically be connected to Aunt Olivia in our recap episodes, also in our chapter two discussion. But let's kind of dig in here a little bit. So Margaret is is a Greek name. It means pearl is adapted typically as as French use now. Lorne is a word that can mean forsaken or desolate. So I just want to pause here for a a moment to marvel at the fact that Margaret Lorne's name means something like the forsaken pearl. And because of another brief throwaway line in this chapter, though we know with Wolf, there's no such thing about the Lois Arbuthnot and the hidden treasure... I was immediately reminded of two very short parables from Jesus that come from the book of Matthew in the New Testament, and they're right next to each other. So I'm just going to read them really quick. Here's what, uh, here's what the book of Matthew reports as Jesus's words. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. I'm not sure if this is a fair to attach uh, this, these parables to this this story, but I just couldn't help but think of it as, uh, you know, maybe this story being weird, uh, finding these treasures and, and losing it all. He doesn't keep them. He forsakes them for, for something else that he thinks is more valuable. So two questions real quick, Glenn. Um, you know, my assumption is that this treasure hunt with Lois Abarthna <laughs> Arbuthnot will not turn out great. But just just a question then. Do you think Wolf might have had this in mind as he's writing this story? And do you think this is about forsaking the real treasure
1: then um, for something? lower on the spiritual scale. Yeah, I, I have joked before about how we ought to actually try to map the chronology of Wolf's stories against the sermons that he heard in church, you know, around that time, and just see if we can actually get the, the, the bulletins from those days and see notes scribbled on the back, you know, story ideas that he's having as the sermon is going on. Uh, because yeah, I think absolutely Wolf is thinking about versus like this. I mean, yeah, I think Margaret Lorne, yeah, just means like lost pearl. And then you can map it on to the way that pearl is being used here in Matthew. And then also, yeah, we've got treasure as well. You know, even without the biblical verses, of course, I think we could think of just, you know, lost pearl as just being, you know, the one who got away, which she clearly is, or at least a one who got away. But yeah, I think Setting it aside, this bit of scripture here means a lot to Wolf, right? Because this story too, as we will eventually talk about in more depth in the wrap-up episodes, it has a lot of autobiographical material in it. Not necessarily literally autobiographical, but thematically autobiographical. And we've talked already about sort of where Wolf is at the time that he's writing this book, really sort of in the, the early 70s. And then taking a long time to, to actually be able to, to sell the book, that he's at a place where he's really thinking about his career and his home life, where they live, and is about to actually make a pretty significant change, right to move his family from Houston to Chicago to make a, a move to a, an adjacent career uh, and then to get on the road to the path as well of, of transforming his writing career into a small business that can support his family that Wolf here, I think, is using "we're" as a kind of mirror for himself, right? To think about who he is, his relationship to work, his relationship to money, and what money is useful for in our society, necessary for in our society, but also family. And there are lots of places, lots of interviews in which Wolf talks about uh, his wife, Rosemary, and then also his children as being super important to him, right? As seeing his family as the most important thing that he's got. And he's showing us here, we're as someone who chooses not to have that, to have this treasure in order to have this wealth. And I think that we can see Wolf here in his forties, thinking about th- that choice too, that he's someone who at this point has to make that choice. There's something I could do in my career. But it's going gonna, it's gonna to involve me really throwing myself at this work that I hate, perhaps for an employer that I don't like very much, uh, you know, as an institution, but also perhaps for actual specific people in management I don't like very much. Or I could not do that, but I won't have this wealth, but I would continue to get to be with my family more, right? I, I don't know. To me, that's something I see here as a, as a theme and something that is really resonating with where Wolf is in his life and in his career when he's writing this. Yeah, I,
0: I really agree with that as well. The the questioning of what the really valuable stuff is in life and, and using Jesus's parables to maybe map uh, some cool stuff onto this story. I will also say that while you were making some of those points, I was trying to imagine how Wolf would handle uh, an Encyclopedia Brown story about, uh, uh, you know, the pearl <laughs> ring that falls into the pie. And <laughs> that, that might be a fun writing prompt we can, we can toss to the audience. <laughs> well, before we move on to the next section, I, I want to reiterate a question I've asked already, which is to wonder whether or not Wolf is using names to communicate meaning I just want to nail this down, or whether he's using names for like more of a reality effect. And like, I have to point out some of the names in this book. There's names like Weir, which mean man, Smart, we've talked about. There's Eleanor Bold, Black, Gold, Tilly, which could just mean something as simple as like, Tiller or a bow or something like that. Are these names meant to be representative of other parts of the character that we can't access through the text? Or is Wolf just picking these names because they're fun?
1: Yeah, I think there's a lot going on with the names. I mean, for one, they are great reality effects. These are real names. People have these surnames, right? Uh, These are fairly common. So that really works with just the, the world building. Uh, but then also, yeah, I think these names also mean something, right? These are words. As actually, all names are, right? They're words that have meaning. We just don't hear them that way, and in part because uh, almost none of us, <laughs> even in anglophone uh, places, actually have English names that like are words that actually have meanings for us, especially our our first names. But yeah, I think that Wolf also is definitely someone who thinks about the meanings of these names. I also though think that Wolf. Hey, he's someone with a sense of humor. It's not always one that we we enjoy, but he's someone <laughs> with a sense of humor. And so I think a lot of what he does here is not uh, wanting to you know, really imbue these character names with just like heavy, symbolic meaning, so much as he's making jokes, right? I mean, I think the idea of naming the one who got away... Uh, the one who got away, <laughs> like I think, like right—that's a joke. <laughs> as much as it is, you know, an, an actual meaning that might help a, a reader who's really thinking about these things make sense of the story. I, you know, a lot of this is for for Wolf's own amusement, I have to imagine.
0: Yeah, I think that's the case too. Well, we have a few more characters to talk about in in this story. The first one I want to talk about is, as we said, Weir's father, John. We get three, I think, pretty important references to Weir's father in this chapter, which is like more than we've gotten in this whole book so far. The first reference we get comes from Eleanor Bold when she claims that uh, the Chinese officer in Olivia's story is a lot like John. And in the context that this is given, we assume that this has to do with hunting, but it could be with some other things as well. Like he's a taskmaster or drill master. He's very skilled in martial Arts, not like, you know, like Bruce Lee stuff, but like (laughs) leading an army or something like that. Um, Even though we suspect he's just a man of leisure, um, I think it really has to do with the hunting stuff. The next reference we get has to do with John's uh, responsibilities to Olivia that were uh, given to him in their father's will we're told that John's responsibility is to do right by Olivia. And so rather than attending her wedding or being an important part of her family, he dumps the kid off at her house, travels around the world, and then gives her a lot of money for a wedding. And the last one that we see here, even though there's a little bit about Olivia and John taking a trip with their family to the South when they were kids, we learned that Weir, Alden Dennis Weir, has maybe a painful association with a film canister, with a film whose contents have to do with the, uh, Christmas. The film, at least, is a Christmas gift from his father. And that might lead to an, a stroke or uh, a side effect of having a stroke and then I'll also say that in Weir's dream we get this idea that John is a hunter again with like the dog boy and Margaret and the unicorn and and all that weird imagery, very strange dreams. So what have we learned about John Weir Glenn like why why is this chapter full of these little moments
1: where John Weir is invoked? I think what's principally being invoked is his absence, right and that we are seeing as we, we've talked about, but we're seeing so many surrogate father figures. It's four of them in this room, right? At this birthday party, right? Four of them. And we know that each of these characters in some way, I think Professor Peacock, the least, uh, has had some influence on Weir. Uh, But so far we see no actual influence of his real biological father. And we know already, right? We've had hints already that Weir's parents are going to be gone for quite a long time. Uh, in these really formative years, right? That uh, they've been around, they were raising Weir, you know, or at least Hannah was, but they were, you know, they were in the house anyway. But these are parts of Weir's life when he has no memories. He doesn't have memories from being one, two, three, you know, maybe he has some from four. He definitely does from five, of course. But that it's going to end up, I think, that Weir's going to enter adulthood Having only spent, maybe at best, half of his memorable years living with his parents, and possibly less than half actually of that time. And so it's really for me that, you know, the absence of, of Weir and his kind of replacement by these surrogates that, that really stands out. And so the invocation of his name is just to remind us that he is not there and that he's kind of this elusive figure about whom we know basically nothing.
0: Yeah, I even get the sense in a classic, uh, you know, Harry Chapin, Cats in the Cradle sort of way, that from the dream, by the time that Weir's father returns, Weir is interested in other stuff, though he still craves his father's attention. And I've suggested that the dog boy in that dream might be a kind of representation of Weir's id or, or drive or desire in some sense, that even though he desires his father's attention, the fact that the dog boy is going hunting with John and not Weir, while the dog boy is also sexually excited or active in some way and is giving attention to Margaret Lorne, that it's the dog boy that gets the attention and not Weir himself. And so I get this sense that even when John returns, Weir's interested in other stuff, girls maybe, he doesn't want to go hunting with his dad, maybe because of resentment uh, that he's built up. And so his dad is going to find other people to spend his attention and time on, which that's kind of par for the course for this character, it seems.
1: Yeah. And this gift of the film, this is a terrible gift. This is a gift that screams, I don't know who you are or what you're interested in. So here's a, here's home movies of you. You know, you know, like, I don't know, that's a terrible gift to like, so like, yeah, it's Christmas. So for Christmas, I got you a photograph I took of you. That, well, that's was a <laughs> right. terrible gift. Get me, just give me nothing. Or, you know, Right.
0: Just, just pat me on the back and say, you love me and, and take me to lunch or something, you know, like. Yeah, it's brutal. I, I imagine, like, I kind of envision this film canister, the film in it is like John going hunting and showing weir how much fun <laughs> it is to go hunting, uh, you know, something like that. That's even worse. Uh, it's just, just brutal, brutal gift. Well, let's move on to the the next big character of this chapter that we're tracking, which is Olivia. We really get snippets about Olivia's love life in this chapter, her marriage, and maybe we should talk about that. We've brought up a few times that she continues to act freely uh, in terms of having sex after she's got married. Maybe having Weir pre- prevented her from having sex with these suitors, which might have meant that she would have had to marry them in the, in the cultural context of the day. Um, what else do you think we see about Olivia in this chapter that we really
1: learn? Well, that's certainly the big thing, right? Is seeing her with the the, the suitors again, and then also, yeah, learning that she marries Julius Smart, but is going to continue to have romantic and then also sexual relationships with at least two of these of these other suitors, who are uh, of the the three suitors we talked about in uh, the fairy tale in chapter two, uh, the only ones who were described as having some kind of physical relationship with uh, with the princess there. So, I am. I think perhaps less certain than you are that she has not already been having sex with them, uh, though that's not really what this book is about. But we might get more on that in the future. And I think it will be worth seeing this world, the, the social norms, and so on through Olivia's eyes, which we spent a long time uh, doing in our, our discussion for chapter two, of course, which is, you know, entitled Olivia.
0: Yeah. And in my reading of the section about the Latvian cook, I'm not convinced she wasn't sleeping with him either. <laughs> yeah, right.
1: That's. I think that's the most, uh, that's, that's really the thing that people are going to come to the forum to want to talk about. <laughs> Olivia was definitely screwing
0: around with the Latvian cook. It's there in the text. <laughs> I mean, I would read that
1: Agatha Christie
0: novel for sure. Oh, absolutely. Well, we should talk about the suitors next because they have been major influences in Weir's life as as we've talked about, but they really fade to the background in this section. Though I do think we still have a little to say about that. Uh, so let's start, I want to end with professor Peacock, but let's start with Stuart Blaine. Does anything else really come out about him during, during this
1: section? He he's actually less bad than I thought he was in chapter two. He actually has some thoughts about stories and storytelling here. So yeah, I'm, he's still not someone I really want to be friends with, but, um, uh, I don't know. Yeah, he was better. He was better in this chapter.
0: Yeah, I agree. I like I liked him more in this chapter. I liked how engaged he was. He didn't act uh like jealous or off. He wasn't off-putting and yeah, he was really putting his uh, desired wished for English degree to use <laughs> in uh, solving the mysteries of uh, Smart's story. What about Jimmy McAfee?
1: Yeah, he actually seemed to not have a whole lot to do in this chapter and didn't really seem to be all that fun at this party. And so maybe contrasting him with Stuart Blaine, I thought he was awesome in chapter two. It's like, he's, you know, kind of my runner up. Professor Peacock is, you know, was still always going to be my, my favorite, at least of these three, you know, who I would pick for Olivia uh, but he would have been a you know not a not too distant second i suppose but he seemed to not really shine at this party even though this party is actually for him uh, so it seems like he you know is perhaps just more comfortable uh, one-on-one with Olivia or, you know, one-on-one plus the the kid in tow with Olivia, uh, that he's more comfortable when he's kind of in control of the environment and the pursuits are actually really his interests. Uh, and maybe that's one of the things that we see here, that although this is a party in honor of his birthday, it is being thrown by Olivia and that she's got this party game that I don't think really suits him all that well. Uh, but then in contrast, right, we see Stuart Blaine in a different environment than we saw him in before as well, where, hey, he doesn't have any employees at this party. And he's not trying to show off his wealth at this party, either the way that he was at, at the at the dinner. And uh, that maybe this is actually a, a, a social setting where he's actually being more like the person he actually wants to be, like more like himself. Whereas Jimmy McAfee seems kind of uncomfortable here.
0: I, I think McAfee has like, Two dark clouds hanging over him at this party. One is the affair with the Chinese egg, maybe realizing that though he won the egg, he might have lost Olivia. And then the other one is perhaps watching Olivia and Smart fall in love through this <laughs> storytelling competition. <laughs> right. no. So maybe world's worst birthday party,
1: in fact. <laughs> yeah. Again, terrible gifts. Terrible gifts is actually, it turns out, the whole motif of this chapter. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that, that's probably true. And I mean, hey, the thematic apperception test is about uh, someone giving someone a gift. So yeah. Cractic. Who even knows how that's going to come back? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, yeah, Jim, Jimmy McAfee. I, yeah, I agree. He's he's not so hot at this party, and I think uh, maybe this wouldn't. I, I I might be like him at this birthday party, like trying to keep a civil mind and be polite. Somebody's throwing a party for me, but um, just reckoning with the you know decisions that led up to it might might leave me feeling a little depressed and and he kind of comes across that way I think in this chapter just sort of sitting off to the side rarely interacting with the storytelling thing this party's kind of not as jam and he's just there you know uh, <laughs> all right now we're on to professor peacock and maybe I have more to say about him than the others but uh what's your, what's your read on what we get for about professor peacock in this chapter
1: yeah something we talked about in in one of the recap episodes is the extent to which he actually just doesn't appear all that much, you know, compared to the other suitors here uh, and thinking about, you know, whether that's objectively true or if that's just the impression that he makes on Weir. And I, I stand by the idea that he makes the least impression on Weir of any of these four suitors. But to me, the thing that's most interesting that we learn about him here is about Olivia's death and that he doesn't come to the funeral, but then dies shortly after that uh, and there does seem to be a kind of implicit claim that he dies of of heartbreak because of Olivia's death. And uh, that's real sad. And and makes, you know, this party even sadder because, yeah, McAfee's not the only person at this party watching the woman you love fall in love with someone else. And in this case, it's the person you brought to the party. He brought Julia Smart to this party. Right.
0: He brought her at the insistence of Olivia. And I, you know, I've really kind of uh, thought more about your reading, which is Hey, maybe having a birthday party with all your lovers there is (laughs) is not a great idea. So we'll invite Eleanor Bolt and then we should invite somebody for Eleanor Bolt who, you know, has this kind of reputation of being a loose woman in the town anyway. So, you know, maybe they'll hook up or something and that'll be fine. And then you just end up the person you brought for. Uh, Eleanor is going to fall in love with the person you're in love with. And maybe you're not interested in Eleanor Bolt. So it seems like nobody's really having fun at this party, except for <laughs> Julius Smart and Olivia and and Weir, who's just really enthralled by all of this.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, when's the duel going to happen? Where are the twins? Uh, case of mistaken, like this is just turning into a Shakespeare play the way that we're describing it now. <laughs>
0: Yeah. It's too too late in the century for anybody to be wearing gloves to throw down or slap <laughs> one another with. So yeah, who knows? Although, I mean, we don't know how Olivia dies. She seems to be in good health. Uh, and and I think, I'm sure we're going to find out more about uh, events surrounding her death. But yeah, I, I will say the most striking thing to me about Professor Peacock is his silence, his reticence to interact. I'm sure he could tell a great adventure story about finding a fossil or something like that. Uh, and then his absence from her funeral, it's his absence and his silence that really
1: characterize him in chapter three. So another question that I've got about Professor Peacock here, Brandon, is how do he and Julia Smart know each other to begin with? What's your sense of that? I think they they, they also might have a bit of an age difference do you think the same way that olivia does with with julia smart that's a
0: really good question it's something i have not thought about at all like maybe they grew up near one another maybe they went to they were at college together maybe they took a a chemistry lab together or something <laughs> like that you know um but i yeah i have no idea it could just be one of those Oh, uh, my family knows his family uh, from like five towns over, and he just showed up in town. So, I'll be a good guy and you know introduce him around and stuff. Get try to get him settled.
1: But I I have no idea. Yeah, I, I think that that's actually probably nearer the mark, right? They might not actually know each other, you know, prior to Smart's moving to Cashinsville to take over this pharmacy, but that there's some family connection, like with an older brother. And Peacock or something like that, and uh, you know Peacock doesn't live in Cashinsville, right? The university is uh, you know tens of miles away from Cashinsville. He's got to take the train in, uh, even though he has a car. He takes the train, spends the night, right before going back uh, to make it just to you know his first class of the day. That's what we know about Peacock. So yeah, to me this feels like uh, there's a family connection. Someone's written to him and said you know this guy's moving to town. Can uh, a town near you anyway? A town that you spend some time in? Can you you know befriend him so that he's got somebody there. Because I have a hard time actually seeing Julia Smart as the sort of person who would uh, move in on the uh, romantic interest of a good friend of his.
0: Right. Well, Julia Smart is either Jesus or the devil. So (laughs) (laughs) we don't know. (laughs) Yeah. I guess the last character that we haven't talked about in terms of what we've learned about is... You know the protagonist. <laughs> we're, I I think we've gotten some like a deeper sense of who he is. I don't know if we've really learned anything new, but you might have found
1: something in the text that's that's new rather than a, a deepening. I think something that has become I think fairly highlighted uh, for me in this chapter that we we were seeing hints of, but that I think really uh, comes to the fore in this chapter is. That we're as someone who is not just unhappy, but that he is someone who is unhappy with himself. Uh, I think that he might even be disappointed in himself, perhaps even have a little bit of self loathing. And that it also might even be the case that he's only just now realizing that. And uh, that might be something to keep in mind, uh, even when we're thinking about you know, what is this book for to begin with.
0: That's a really good point. I guess that's really exemplified in the moment where Weir and and Charlie Scudder go to the bar. And Weir recognizes in that moment that he's maybe an object of scorn of others. And maybe he's always been, in some sense, an object of scorn. And his response is grammatically confusing. uh, And we talked about this in our recap episode where he has either witnessed the bar that he felt that scorn um, just go out of business and crumble and weeds overgrow the parking lot, or he has seen to it, like I mentioned Jesus cursing the fig tree, that it was torn down, that it was no longer going to be a place where his workers could uh, enjoy a drink without being under the eye of the Panopticon. So... I think Weir is slowly circling around the idea. We saw the example about his response to the interior decorator. We saw early on the way that he said he would never talk to his employees the way Van Ness does, that he's maybe slowly coming to recognize that he's maybe deserving on some sense, which would lead to self-loathing of the scorn of others and maybe trying to figure out if that was him or somebody else's fault.
1: And I don't think we should dwell on this here, but we will want to return to it. But I think that, you know, one of the things that is happening here in this chapter and in chapter two is we're as an adult looking back at all of these men in his life and comparing himself to them. And uh, I think we're going to have more of that as the story continues. So we'll, we'll talk about that more in the future.
0: Well, now's a good time for us to shift into our discussion of craft because that's what this chapter really highlighted for me. Wolf's just absolute mastery of craft. And and maybe the first thing we should do is, again, confront the reality that this is another chapter of the story that features the story within the story format. This is the biggest version of that. We've seen a ton of stories in chapter two. We've seen a few in chapter one, but this chapter really is the story within the story. We've seen horror stories with the Banshee. Uh, we've seen Founding of America stories, uh, hagiographies, uh, tall tales, all sorts of things. And we've talked about the kind of mixing of genres that's going on here with the use of orally transmitted stories. We've looked at the fairy tales, which are none of them are real. So let's maybe take that little approach here. This is, these are more orally transmitted tales that do conform to certain genre conventions. So what genres do you see, Glenn, in these two stories, the Chinese officer story and smart
1: story uh, at play in in this chapter? Yeah, these two stories here, these are the stories that so far feel the most like stories written down to be published as stories. I I think that we could make that case for the, the fairy tale as well. But that, That would have been something that one might have published in the second half of the 19th century and maybe not, you know, sort of contemporary to Wolf's writing career, right? Not have, you know, been looking to sell these types of stories necessarily in the early 1970s. But these two stories, the Chinese officer and Tilly's ghost story, these both feel like stories that Wolf might have written for some other purpose and tried to, and, and had a, a, you know, a, a good expectation of being able to sell to a magazine. And the story about the Chinese officer, that's just a bit of magical realism. That's a story of uh, of magical realism framed as a type of historical fiction. It's a beautiful story. Tons of examples of exactly that type of thing. I don't, you know, Neil Gaiman writes a lot of stories uh, like this and many other writers as well. And then Tilly's story is this crazy horror story. It's got part ghost story, part mad scientist story, part weird carnival story. It's kind of a mashup of a number of different things that uh, Ray Bradbury has done. Uh, Maybe a mashup of just all of Wolf's favorite types of stories, I guess, right? But all drawing on that, that horror genre, or at least the horror publishing category.
0: What do you think the value is for Wolf? in including so many stories with this horror or tragic element in this novel. It's so strange that this kind of real world story that Weir is in, wandering around his house, having a stroke, being isolated, that's tragic. Yet we're constantly being told stories with these elements of harder or fantasy or magic what do you think wolf is trying to do by include these elements into this story
1: there, there are two ways I want to answer that question and one of them is to, to set aside maybe really the the thought about horror and just think about stories in general I think as we talked about in uh, the fifth head of Cerberus and also have talked about in, in a number of wolf's short stories is wolf at this point, in his writing career anyway, as someone who is writing a lot about stories, storytellers, you know, what storytelling and stories are for in our lives, both as individuals, but then also in, in the, you uh, know, or their, their place, I should say, in our communities, our society. And that is clearly already both a motif and a theme in this book, right? That this is very much a book about stories, uh, what they mean for us, what they do for us, but then also very much a book about the tellers of those stories. But then thinking about, you know, the horror here and how all of these stories, maybe not horror, but have some kind of, you know, dark element, uh, some kind of un happy element, right? Whether they're highlighting that frequently life is pretty sucky right? and the bad things happen to people, bad things happen to good people, bad things happen to all sorts of people is right there in so many of these stories. We have seen that, you know, Weir's life, you know, really, as we've talked about earlier in this episode, right? The the sort of catalyst for Weir's life is the death of Bobby Black, Uh, following their fight at Weir's birthday party. That in itself is a pretty dark episode, a pretty dark catalyst for Weir's biography, for sure. But I think that thematically, or maybe not thematically, but just in terms of like mood, I guess, right? That Wolf is hammering home again and again, I think through the stories within the stories that we should be looking at the frame story, at Weir's own story, with that mood, with that lens in mind as well, right? That we are reading something that if not actually a horror story has some characteristics of it at any rate.
0: I think we also see that these stories are here for us as a, as a sort of safe port, uh, a way for Weir to kind of dock the true events as he remembers them and kind of maybe, I don't know, take a more fanciful ship out. And and so what he's doing is he's telling these us these stories that are really about his life in some way, or his concerns, or his ideas about the world, with enough distance that he doesn't have to confront the reality. And so I think as we get to the last two chapters of this story, we're really going to have to focus on what these stories say or are telling us, or how Weir is telling us about his life by using these stories to Distance himself from the unsavory
1: truths about his reality. Well, and you had observed earlier, Brandon, as well that as we close out this chapter, the the, the tone of Weir's own narrative has really darkened, and that maybe that's actually been happening even you know chapter by chapter uh, that we've been getting darker and and darker as we get into the uh, you know the the middle of this of this story.
0: Yeah, it it really alarmed me when I was reading this chapter. Uh, Especially towards the end, that this, as I called it in our recap episodes, this sinister note just continued to reverberate. and it it gets so strong that this otherwise maybe innocuous line from Dr. Black, though, you know, I don't think it's even innocuous on the face of it, but this uh, maybe just instructional line from a, an authoritarian doctor, from Dr. Black to Weir at the end of the story is just, Full of dread. I mean, there's a sense of doom about it. Dr. Black says, Don't bite or I'll slap you. I'm going to paint that throat with iodine. And this line is ultimately about curing maybe a strep infection that Weir has as a young boy. But right before then, we have this sense that, you know, there might be a ghost in Weir's house. There's all these lingering mysteries that have been building up. The Pain that Wolf feels at the canister, the film canister from his father that leads to him casting his mind back to having a throat infection as a four year old. It's, it's a huge amount of stuff that actually happens at the end of this chapter, and none of it seems good or healthy. Wears a fear that he'll actually encounter his secretary. And I'm wondering, Glenn, then, if you had the same experience in, in closing this chapter as a reader that. If you had that same experience of feeling uh, a tonal shift, and if
1: you have any real idea about how Wolf pulled this off, because I want to learn that trick. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how Wolf does any of the things he does, right? I mean, Wolf is just magic, but no, I, I share your feelings here that I got really distressed at the end of this chapter, right? This sudden, maybe not sudden, but that we, we have at the end of this chapter, this real intense fear, that we're is feeling. It's almost a revelation, right? That we're is not just sad and lonely, but that actually as he is walking around this weird museum mansion that he's made, this fun house mansion that he's made for himself. It's not just that he's sad and lonely. It's not just that he gets lost in his own house, the way uh, Michael Keaton's Batman does. It's not just that he can't find his Boy Scout knife. He's afraid of something. This fear might actually be something that he's been walking around with for a long time. You know, what is the exact nature of that fear is unclear, right? Even even what he says here about being afraid that his secretary might answer is something that we could take to mean several different things and might actually mean all, all of them at once, right? But that, you know, what if... He pushes this button that he knows to be fake and someone answers. Well, that, that would be terrifying from a, like, what is reality standpoint or like a, am I insane standpoint, right? That could be terrifying, but it also might be that what he's terrified of is actually having to encounter a real person that he he wants to just be alone in this, in this mansion with his memories and the the artifacts from his life, and really, really does not want to encounter another person who is real for him right now. That he's afraid of other people, and uh, that that seems almost to have crept up on us. But I don't think it actually has. It's masterful.
0: I know I'm supposed to wait until our wrap up to have read uh, a bunch of the critical <laughs> readings of this book, um, but I'm a cheat. So, uh, Joan Gordon's reading of this book which, you know, I'm sure she'd use this as as evidence if she were writing, you know, a much longer essay on it. Uh, this moment of the secretary is that this is a, a novel of a midlife crisis. And the fear that the secretary is there is really the fear that Weir is still at work, that he still has to go back to work, that, that the... the, the old age, that all of that stuff is a fantasy. And we see evidence for that as we read the book, but we're not going to dig into that now. It's just maybe a tease for our wrap-up episode. (laughs) Well, since we've been talking about sort of the dread and and sinister nature of this novel, we do want to read some of our favorite passages from this chapter. But that's really in service to something we haven't done that much on this series of episodes, really all of peace, which is to just Revel in Wolf's Mastery of Prose. This chapter is full of some amazing prose passages, and some of them are more sinister than others. But I think we need to take a a time, now that we're halfway through this book, take a moment to really just enjoy the pleasure of reading this novel. Glenn, what passage do you have picked out for us?
1: Well, I don't think it will surprise anyone that I have picked a a description of an environment, a sort of scene setting passage. And it's actually just the first paragraph of this chapter. I won't read the whole thing, but about halfway through, uh, it's just absolutely a a beautiful bit of of wordsmithing here. And Wolf here is remembering uh, this trip that he and Margaret Lorne took out to the river on their bikes. Uh, And so he's talking about the bikes here. Margaret and I wheeled ours down narrow footpaths. Threading the woods lining the banks of the Kanakay below Cashensville, threading the banks in early spring when the black willows were dabbed with green, and birds called through a forest littered with the wind-fallen branches of the winter past, coming out at last on stony banks with sand farther down, sand where the high winter water had cast it in making its wide turn, a beach that would grow cockleburs later, but was fine sifted sand now dotted with driftwood. And all of that, that, that's all just a single sentence. This goes on a little bit more. All of that's all beautiful as well. But that was a lot to read. And it was all just a single sentence. It was just beautiful images, but also just a grammatical delight. I mean, this is, you know, the, the prose equivalent of, uh, you know, in film, a sort of a, a wonder, right? We just sort of marvel at the technique of, of, of showing us this. Uh, just absolutely beautiful.
0: Yeah, the, the passages I've chosen, uh, even though I think I knew which one you were going to pick, I <laughs> <laughs> decided to pick some backups since I'm, uh, doing the discussion. There's. Two pa- I mean, I could read two pages in a row, and I split them into two passages, uh, about, again, about Margaret Lorne. The beauty that Wolf writes about his time with Margaret Lorne, the thoughts that it brings up with him in relation to sex and desire and fear, uh, all of that is caught up in this beautiful two-page section that I'm not going to read. That's pages 190 to 192 in the Orb 2012 edition. I think instead, I'm going to read a little bit uh, of the kind of early horror of this story, uh, of this chapter. That's part of Weir's digressions in the middle of Julia Smart's story. So this is on page 178 of the Orb 2012 edition. And and this is maybe a little less descriptive, but but no less beautiful for its uh, power in introducing us to some of the elements that will come later. I found it. I must say, quite truthfully, that I hadn't much hope I would. With my notebook and pen, I set off into this house as if I were entering a jungle. But it is close, quite close, down the smaller of the halls, the crooked one, eight or ten doors, and to the left. I must remember that. It's cold in here. Winter has not left the interior of the house yet. The windows. As president, I have seven windows, Charlie Scudder and Dale Everton, my executive vice presidents, have six, other VPs five. Look out onto the plant, and the calendar mechanism must still be operating. It is a cold, wet spring day out there, and I can see the water dripping from the handrail of the catwalk that winds its way up number three spray tower. My desk is as it should be, with the telephones, and the mail Miss Burkhead has opened for me lies in the middle of the blotter. It cannot be read, however concealed nails hold it in place. I mean, that's an example of Wolf kind of amping up that sinister tone, right? Like, why are there concealed nails on his desk hiding his mail? <laughs> and then we kind of move back into uh, another uh, interjection with the salesman or the ad exec, and then we get more about the aunt's wedding. But this scene, I think, really contributes to that, to that sinister tone we've talked about ramping up towards the end of this chapter. The house is like a jungle. It's cold, though, like winter. That's an incongruity, actually, in how you'd think of the jungle and how cold the house is. Uh, the way that Weir is in, likes having more windows than people beneath him. And then the ultimate purpose of the windows is to look out upon the work floor and see people working. Uh, the, the fact that his desk is as it should be. And it's his secretary's job to arrange his desk, but he can't open his mail because of these concealed nails. It's just, I think it's a wonderful description. And, and all of these details pay off
1: as the chapter continues. I mean, this description of the office is actually really quite terrifying. I mean, just imagine, Brandon, I mean, like really imagine living in a house like this, right? A, a big mansion where you have replicated rooms of other places you have lived or worked or just visited, which in some ways sounds kind of cool. Like, I guess I might, you know, I have some fondness for my childhood bedroom. I don't know. That would be kind of cool, I guess. But it's also a little bit terrifying, I think, to make something like that and then be totally alone in it. And that we're really seeing that we're is having a hard time Perhaps because of, or at least in part because of these physical surroundings, he's kind of losing his grip on when and where he actually is. And that that's part of where this fear that someone might actually answer if he pushes the button, that's part of where that comes from. Is he's he is actually losing his grip on where and when. He is. And that's really sinister. And Wolf infuses this description with it. I I also like that both of the descriptions that we picked here, both of these passages that we picked, have some emphasis on the season, and in particular, the changing of seasons. And it's the same change. It's the change from winter to spring, because that is actually what is happening for we're in his present, right? Is that winter is finally passing. It's becoming spring. He can actually go into other parts of the house, which he wasn't doing before because he can't actually heat them. But now that it's getting warmer night, he can actually go write this book in his old office or the replica of his old office anyway. And I'm not sure, and I'm not suggesting we do it now because we are nearing the two-hour mark. But uh, we have not been thinking about the sort of passage of the seasons as much in this book. But maybe that's something for us to try to pay a little more attention to in chapter four. Another thing to track, uh, boy. <laughs> yeah, the list is long <laughs> at this I'm, point. <laughs> I'm running out of paper. Glenn. <laughs> uh,
0: I also want to just highlight, you know, that that idea of the crooked small hallway in the house that he built. It, The idea of constructing a house with a crooked hallway with eight doorways on it is insane already. And yet that's another moment where we're getting this reported to us as though it's mundane. And we have to stop because of the way the prose works to recognize how unhinged the idea of the hallway is. Where the offices, the house, even are, Wolf has just mastered the idea of telling us uh, this is normal because it's what the character,
1: it's the character setting, and it's not. It's wonderful. Yeah, it's so awesome, and and this house is really just begging to be the um, the locale of a like. Uh, um, you know, hosting a murder sort of dinner party game. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
0: Well, I think the last thing we want to do here since we've done it for the other suitors is to uh, cast Julius Smart in our film adaptation of Peace. I mean, we can cast Tilly as well, I suppose. Uh, But but I, I have a pretty... Solid casting choice for, for Tilly. I don't know about smart, Glenn. What do you think?
1: Right. So chapter two, we just started at some point really seeing this book through the lens of the Gilmore Girls, or at least I did. I couldn't <laughs> get away. I couldn't get away from it. And the same thing happened to me or a similar thing happened to me here with chapter three, though. I uh, I tried to play it a little cooler this time, but Tilly's story in particular just felt like an you know, sort of extended episode of Twin Peaks to me. And at some point in my mind, Julius Smart just became Kyle McLaughlin. Like I just couldn't, I just couldn't turn that off.
0: That's a that's a great choice. Mine is like a, a young, uglified uh, Owen Wilson for some reason. Oh, yeah, okay. There's just this sense of uh, odd charisma about Julius Smart there's like the lack of parallel in the face which i think could be made uh you know with with makeup or glasses rough haircut a little hunchback uh i just uh, for some reason i want to hear owen wilson give the give the tale of <laughs> Uh, just just orate the tale with that odd sort of charisma. I don't know. It's weird. Well, <laughs> it's not a good choice, but it's just it's an instant.
1: No, I think it's a great choice. I think you're right. I actually want Owen Wilson to be Julia Smart at the party, but then I want Kyle McLaughlin to like play him in the flashbacks to Tilly's story.
0: Yeah, uh, that would be great. Uh, since we're talking about Tilly, and since this really, this story could really be adapted quite well, I'll I'll, I'll go first with Tilly. Uh, the person I have in mind it's it's an actor named Julian Richings. <laughs> uh, I f- I first saw him as uh, a character, the character of death in Supernatural in the earlier seasons, like 2010 to 2015. Um, But he's also in a really great show called Patriot. Those are like the two roles I've seen him in. But I just, he's Tilly to me. He'd be perfect.
1: Uh, We did not coordinate this at all or talk about this ever off mic, but this is 100% my answer too. And it became my answer immediately. It was, well, not immediately, I guess it was the description of him reaching up I I just, I didn't know the actor's name, but I just saw, oh yeah, that's Death from Supernatural. (laughs) Well, that's who it is then. There there can be no (laughs) other choice. (laughs) No other choice. Yeah. Because Julian Richings, at least the way, you know, he's portrayed in Supernatural uh, is too tall uh, and too thin. And then also, you know, is playing Death (laughs) and Tilly sort of seems like also he's playing Death as well. So yeah, uh, that's the perfect casting.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, great. We've agreed on one casting choice in <laughs> this whole time. It's a good thing we're not casting agents.
1: <laughs> I actually think we'd be great at it. Uh, yeah, yeah. Maybe
0: if we could if we could pick actors from any generation at any time. I mean. <laughs> Yeah. yeah like, well,
1: you know, we need some kind of time machine, but uh but that's really I think how you get good at anything is to have a time machine. Yeah, I I think so. I think that's the only
0: way to get good at stuff. But uh I don't know. That doesn't make much sense. And as we're losing coherence, it's probably time to stop the episode here. So that's gonna do it actually for chapter three now. And we're so glad you stayed with us for this long. Once again, I'm Brandon Buddha,
1: And I'm Glenn McDorman. Yeah, thank you so much for uh joining us on this journey. We're going to be back on May 24th with the first recap episode of Chapter 4. We don't know how many episodes there will be, but probably a lot for that chapter. It's another big one. And in the meantime, until we're back, we hope that you'll join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash claytemplemedia. We have just finished doing a dozen episodes on the H.P. Lovecraft novel at the Mountains of Madness. That was so much fun. So we hope you'll check that out. Also, if you're not listening to our other shows, now is a great time to check those out as well. Uh, Brandon and I just finished airing three episodes on the you know, famous and infamous Robert Heinlein novel *Starship Troopers* over on ATAS. Uh, also, over on ATAS, my childhood friend and also uh, medievalist colleague Jade Deal, uh, he and I did four episodes on the Isaac Asimov novel *Foundation*. So. All of those series, uh, that all just adds up to, I don't know, 35, 40 hours or so of chatter uh, that can keep you entertained while we are off uh, recovering from whatever it is that Mr. Tilly has, uh, has done to us here. So until next time, we greet you and say farewell.